The title of the message this morning is A Religion to Beware of. This message is important for both Christians and those who are not Christians. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know today that religion is not what you need. Just being religious will not make you right with God. In fact, there's a certain kind of religion that you need to beware of. If you are a follower of Jesus, this message is going to help you examine your own religious practices to discover if they are genuine, God-honoring, and beneficial. Or if they have degenerated into something less. Let's listen carefully to what God has to say to us today about what kind of religion we should beware of. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44. If you'd like to use one of the Bibles in the back of the pew in front of you, you'll find that on page 1024. Mark 12. It is the final week of Jesus' life. On earth. The days have been marked by conflict and controversy with the Jewish religious leaders. We've seen over the last several weeks they're trying to trap Jesus in his words, trying to get some, some ammo to use against him at a trial. And he is exposing them and their fruitless, corrupt religion. And every bit of this has taken place inside the temple. Well, when we come to Mark 12, verses 38 to 44, the questions from the religious leaders have now ceased. They have been unable to outsmart Jesus. They cannot catch him in his words. And what we're going to read in these verses this morning are Jesus' last recorded words in the temple before leaving the temple for the last time. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. And in his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who want to walk around in long robes and want respectful greetings in the marketplaces and best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the crowd was putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two lepta, which amounts to a quadrants. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of those putting money into the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Let's pray. God, we believe that in these verses there is a clear word for us. And we ask you to speak it loud and clear today. Speak it in power. Cause it not just to lodge in our heads, but in our hearts and minds to transform us into the image of your son. Do it, please, for his glory and our good. Amen. 
Large crowds are gathered in the temple because it is the week of Passover. And they have been hanging on Jesus' every word. Jesus is about to leave the temple never to return. He will spend His final hours teaching His disciples. But before He leaves the temple for good, He has one last lesson to teach the people. And actually, it's a warning. There is a kind of religion they need to beware of. There is a way of practicing religion that is dangerous. And it's dangerous because you think you're pleasing God when actually the opposite is true. Jesus' final lesson to the people is this warning. Beware of religion without love. Beware of religion without love. In these verses, Jesus tells the Jewish people listening to him to beware of practicing the religion the way their Jewish religious leaders practiced it. He says in verse 38, beware of the scribes. Beware of doing religion the way they do it without love for God and without love for people. Beware of religion without love. If you remember from last week, the context of these verses is the great commandment. You remember last week, the very last text we saw in this chapter was Jesus asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the context of these verses, this discussion about loving God and loving your neighbor. Now Jesus is going to expose the corrupt religious leaders because their religion fails on both counts. They fail to love God and fail to love people. So let me show you first of all this. Beware of religion without love for God. We see this in verses 38 through 40. Beware of a devotion to religious practices that does not flow out of a heart that is devoted to God. You see the word beware it has the idea of watching out for something that's hazardous. In this case, what's hazardous is the religion practiced by the scribes, the so-called experts in the law of Moses. Jesus tells us four things that they take great pleasure in. You see what it says? Beware of the scribes who want to do some things. The word want to means they take great delight in certain things. There are four of them. Let's look at them. The first is walking around in long robes. In other words, they take great pleasure in impressing other people by their outward appearance. The garment that's mentioned here, Jesus says they walk around in long robes. This is not the normal garment worn by Jewish men. It is in Greek, it's called a stola. It is a long flowing robe that signified wealth and status. In the Old Testament, the term is used 
for clothing that's particularly impressive, like a priest's garments or royal clothing. Let me give you one example of where it's used. Genesis 41, 42. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. That's the idea, these royal clothing. Clothing that's supposed to show status and wealth, respectability. You see, they like to walk around in clothes like this because their goal is to impress people with their high status. The second thing the scribes took great pleasure in is respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Verse 38. In other words, they wanted people to recognize them in public and conclude from the way they were dressed that they were important people who should be greeted with respect. In simple terms, they wanted to be treated like they were somebody. Did you know in the book of Esther, you remember the book of Esther? You remember there was a plot to have all the Jews exterminated, wiped out by Haman? Did you know that whole plot arose because of this very thing? Listen to Esther chapter 3 verse 2 and verse 5. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate were bowing down and prostrating themselves before Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow down or prostrate himself. Then Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or prostrating himself before him. So Haman was filled with wrath. He hatched the whole plan to have the Jews demolished because Mordecai refused to bow down and show him respect. These scribes were like that. Well, they, they, they want everybody to show them respect, acknowledge them. They considered themselves men of status, important men, and they wanted to be treated like it. The third thing that the scribes took great pleasure in, says in verse 39, is having the best seats in the synagogues. In the synagogue, where they gathered for Jewish worship, in the towns, the congregation would be seated on the floor, right in the middle of the synagogue. But it says they wanted the best seats. Literally, it refers to what's called the first seats. These were benches that faced the congregation. The congregation would sit in the middle of the floor, and they had benches up front that faced the people. They were reserved for people like teachers. Men of high rank and status. It'd be something like the seats we have on the podium, usually reserved for the people who are leading the service. But for the scribes, it was all about being seen and regarded as important. They wanted to be up front where they could be seen. They wanted people to know they were somebody. They were holy men, men who deserved honor and respect. They wanted to be up front. Well, they could be noticed. The fourth thing the scribes took great pleasure in, we see it as having seats of honor at banquets, places of honor at banquets. Okay, this reflects an ancient custom in which guests at a banquet, guests at a feast, they would be seated according to their social status. 
Okay, The host would take the first position. His honored guest would sit on his right. You see, the honored guest would not only receive the best seat at dinner, but he would receive the best food. And it's the same issue again for these scribes. They are motivated by a desire to be honored and respected. They want to be seen and treated as men of high standing and honor. So he lists these four things that he says the scribes take great pleasure in. Then Jesus mentions two things the scribes are guilty of. The first one, it says in verse 40, they devour widows' houses. We're going to skip that for now and come back to it. The second, I want you to notice this. It says, for appearance's sake, they offer long prayers. Now, Jesus is not condemning them for praying long prayers. The problem is not the length of the prayer. There are times it says Jesus prayed all night. That's a long prayer. The problem is they were doing it for appearance's sake. In other words, their prayers were intended for the ears of those who were listening, not for the ears of God. Their goal was for people to hear them pray and think they were holy, think they were somebody. Their prayers were intended to impress people. And that's exactly the kind of prayer Jesus warns against. Do you remember this in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 6, 5 and 6, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But that's the way the scribes were. Are you getting the picture yet? It should be abundantly clear by now that the religious practices of these scribes were not done out of a heart of love for God. No, 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 no. They didn't go to the synagogue with the goal of expressing heartfelt worship to God. They didn't pray from a heart that longed to connect with God. They didn't give out of a heart of gratitude to God. They didn't sing. They didn't study. They didn't do any of it because they loved God. Their religion was motivated by love for self. Not the love of God. It's just like Jesus said of them in Matthew 15, verses 7 and 8. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. That's exactly the kind of religion Jesus is telling these Jewish people to beware of. Beware of religion that doesn't flow out of a heart of love for God. Now here's the question we have to ask. How can we make sure? How can you make sure your religious practices always flow out of a heart of love for God? There's only one way. You must have a new heart. 
People, people in their natural state have a corrupt heart. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? Mankind in his natural born condition does not have the capacity to love God from the heart. So what's the solution? How can you practice religion from a heart of love for God? You have to have a new heart. How do you get a new heart? There's only one way and that's through Jesus. Ezekiel 36 God is telling his people there that he's going to give them a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. He is telling the people what's going to happen when he has a new covenant with them, when he sends his son to, to create a new covenant with his people, this is the work he's going to do in his people through the new birth, through regeneration. This is what happens when a person is born again. When you turn to Christ in repentance and faith, you're forgiven all of your sin. You're, you're given the very spirit of God to dwell in you. You are made new on the inside. You're given a new heart, just like Ezekiel 36 says. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it like this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How do you worship from a heart that loves God? How do you pray and study and sing from a heart that loves God? How do you practice religion from a heart of love for God? It can only happen when you have a new heart given to you by faith and repentance. Here's the thing. You will not pray from a heart of love for God if you don't have a heart that loves God. You won't worship from a heart of love for God if you don't have a heart that loves God. And unless and until you have been born again through faith in Jesus, you will not have a heart that loves God. I need you to hear this. Christians don't worship out of a sense of duty, hoping that God will accept us. I want to say that again. Christians do not worship out of a sense of duty, hoping God will accept us. Christians worship from a heart of love for God because he has already accepted us in Jesus. You understand the difference? We don't worship in hopes that God will love us and accept us. We worship out of the overflow of our heart because he's already accepted us in Jesus. But Jesus is telling these people and he's telling us, beware of any religion that does not flow out of a heart of love for God. And here's the second thing I need to show you. Beware of religion without love for people. Now I want to go back to what Jesus said in verse 40. 
He says these scribes are guilty of devouring widows' houses. Widows, orphans, and resident foreigners, people who weren't Jewish but lived with the Jewish people. Those people, the poor in the land, were mentioned in the Old Testament as people for whom God had special concern. You see, they were the most vulnerable people in society. Widows, orphans, foreigners. And the people of God were called upon by God to see to it that these people were taken care of, not mistreated. And God promised that if they mistreated the poor, the widows, the orphans, they would be judged by God. Deuteronomy 10, verses 18 and 19. He executes justice for the orphan and for the widow and shows love for the sojourner by giving him food and clothing. So show love for the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. But in verse 40, Jesus says that these scribes devour widows' houses. What in the world is that about? It describes the way religious leaders would acquire the homes of widows in an unethical manner. This could happen in a lot of different ways. They could charge excessive fees if they were doing some kind of legal work for the widows. Remember, these scribes were lawyers. It, it, could, it could happen as these religious leaders deliberately mismanaged the estate of a widow that they had been made trustees of upon their husband's death. They happened through taking pledges from widows if the widow had debt she couldn't pay. It happened as these religious leaders pushed widows to give money to the temple out of resources they really didn't have. It could happen as the religious leaders exploited the trust and hospitality of these widows. A lot of different ways. They could essentially devour widows. In other words, take all she had and leave her destitute. And this is particularly despicable because a widow's house would probably be her only inheritance left to her from her husband. What's happening is widows effectively become victims of corrupt religious leadership and a corrupt religious system. Ironically, this is a system which was initially designed to ensure the welfare of widows and orphans. God designed it to make sure they were taken care of, but the Jewish religious leaders had perverted it to the place where it now took advantage of these poor widows and often robbed them and left them destitute. When you come to verses 41 through 44, we see an example of this very thing. We see Jesus is sitting down across from the treasury. Okay, the treasury is located in the court of women. It's not called the court of women because only women were allowed there. It's called the court of women because that's the furthest into the temple women could go. Okay, so Jesus is watching as people are putting the money in their treasury. There were 13 receptacles that money would be put in. They were called shofar chests. You may know a shofar is the ram's horn they blow. 
They were called shofar chests because they were shaped like a trumpet. They were tapered real small at the top and they fluted out like a trumpet at the bottom. They were shaped this way so once people dropped money in, nobody could reach down in it and get it, right? You couldn't get in there to get money. There were 13 of them. Some of them were for specific offerings. You'd put your specific offering in certain receptacles and some were for free will offerings. Now, notice verse 41 and 42. As he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the crowd was putting money into the treasury, many rich people were putting in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two lepta, which amounted to a quadrants. Jesus clearly knows how much these people are putting in. How does he know how much they're giving? Well, when contributions were given in the temple for priestly service, the attending priest would examine the offering for genuineness, make sure it was real, genuine money. He would ask about the purpose of the offering. What was it for? And he would verify that the contribution corresponded with whatever sacrifice you know, had been prescribed. And the priest would then direct the worshiper to put the money in whatever was the appropriate chest. And here's the thing. Every bit of this was done out loud and could be heard by all the spectators. So it would be announced what you were giving, essentially. And Jesus says many rich people were giving large sums of gold and silver. And then it says Jesus sees a poor widow who gives two lepta. Some versions change it to penny, but it really is a lepta. And these two lepta, lepta was the smallest Jewish coin made. It was made of copper. Together, these two coins would be worth one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. If you made twelve fifty an hour, these two coins would be worth a dollar fifty. And that's virtually nothing compared to what these other people were giving. But notice verse 43. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all those putting money into the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Jesus said the offering this woman put in is more significant than all the offerings given by the rich. Why? Because their offerings didn't really cost them anything. They were giving out of their overflow. This widow woman gave all the money she had to live on. What that means is she's left without money to buy supper. You get that, don't you? She's left destitute. She now has nothing left. And believe it or not, there have been documented cases where widows like this would be publicly ridiculed because their offering was so small. When Jesus said this corrupt religious leadership and their corrupt religious system devours widows' houses, this is exactly the kind of thing he was talking about. 
taking everything they have and leaving them destitute. She was duped into giving all she had by false promises that doing so would somehow bring her great blessing. Now, normally, we hear this woman held up as an example of how we should give as she gave. We hear her held up as an example of sacrificial giving. Listen to me very carefully. This woman is not an example. She's a victim. She's a victim. If this woman is an example for how you and I are supposed to give, then here's the lesson. Jesus wants you to give everything you have to live on. That's what she did. If she's our example, then that's what Jesus wants us to do. How many of you believe that Jesus is teaching us that we should give to the church everything we have to live on? Raise your hand if you think that's what he's teaching. No, none of us believe that's what he's teaching. This poor widow is a victim. She was left destitute by corrupt religious leadership who rather than taking from her should have been giving to her. According to the scripture. John MacArthur said this, far from viewing her giving as a model for that of believers, Jesus is angry with the religious system that had literally taken her last cent. Think about the context. This whole context has been Jesus condemning the religious leadership. That's what he's doing with this example of this widow woman. He's condemning them for devouring all that she had. And in the very next verses in chapter 13, which we'll begin looking at tonight, what we're going to see is the next thing Jesus does is declare the temple's going to be demolished and an end is going to come to this corrupt religious system. They were the most religious people of their day. But for all their religion, they didn't love people. They weren't the least bit concerned about this poor widow. It was their perverted religious system that deprived her of everything she had. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the kind of religion Jesus is telling us to beware of. Jesus is saying to his church, beware of religion that does not manifest itself, that does not show up in love for people. I shared my testimony with a waitress in a Mexican restaurant one time in Byram, Mississippi. She said, oh, I, I love Jesus, but I won't go to church. I just can't be around those people. She claimed to have had some bad experiences in church. Maybe so. But I'll say this. That woman didn't love Jesus. So preacher, you don't know that. Yes, I do. Because those who love Jesus will love his people. Oh, I, that's not my words. First John chapter 4, verse 20. 
If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Tell me you love Jesus and you don't even like the church, the people of God. Are they perfect? No. Are they often messed up? Yes. But this is the people Jesus died for. And you don't love him if you don't love the people he died for. If you don't love people, there's no reason for anybody to believe you care one whit about God. Here's, here's a mistake people make. People make the mistake of thinking that religion is just a matter between you and God. My religion is between me and God. Look at me. Wrong. Wrong. Do you know six of the Ten Commandments regulate your relationship not with God, but with other people? You do realize that. Four of the commandments are about your relationship with God. Six of them are about your relationship with people. Your religion is not just a matter between you and God. The prayers of a person who does not love others are not going to be honored by God. The songs of a person who does not love others are not going to be joyfully received by God. And we're back to the same problem again, aren't we? A lack of genuine love whether it be love for God or love for people, is a sign of a corrupt heart. Why don't people love others the way they should? Because they have a corrupt heart. And religion that flows from a corrupt heart is detestable to God. If you don't have a religion that flows from a heart of love for God, it's because you have a heart problem. If your religion doesn't manifest itself in love for people that is visible and obvious, the same is true. You have a heart problem. I want to say this again, though. Jesus can give you a new heart. Oh, yes, he can. And when he does, when, when Jesus gives you a new heart... Love for others will begin to show itself in your life. Your prayers will begin to show love for others. Instead of being one of those people, you pray for you and yours, but you don't worry too much about the rest. No, no, you're going to find yourself praying more and more and more for people around you, praying for others. You won't just attend church out of a sense of duty. No, no, no. When Jesus gives you a new heart, you'll find that you're eager to be with the people of God. You want to come and worship God because you love God, but, but you want to do it with the people of God that you've, you've grown to love. It's the relationships you look forward to. You'll find when your heart's made new that you willingly and gladly give for the benefit of others and you willingly and gladly serve for the benefit of others. If your religion doesn't look like that, Something's wrong. Beware of religion that doesn't have love for people 
Beware of religion that doesn't manifest itself in love for people. Several years before I met my amazing wife, I was engaged to another girl. Obviously, it didn't work out. You know, there's really only one problem with that relationship. She loved the thought of me, but she didn't love me. She loved the idea of being married to me, but she didn't really love me. But for me, that wasn't good enough. The absence of genuine love for me was a deal breaker. What am I saying to you today? I'm telling you the same thing is true for God. The absence of genuine love when it comes to religion is a deal breaker for God. Without love, it's a deal breaker. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't count. It's just not worth anything. Listen, if you're not a Christian today, religion is not going to help you. You need a new heart. You need a new heart. And if you'll come to him today, if you'll turn to him as best you know how in repentance of your sin and trusting him to save you. Oh, he'll give you a new heart. And then your religious practices, your prayers and your reading and your church attendance and all that you do to serve him, it'll begin to flow out of a heart of love for people. And, and it'll begin to show a love for, for uh, it'll begin to flow out of a love for God and it'll begin to show up in a love for people. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 4, Jesus said the church at Ephesus had left their first love. That doesn't mean their most important love. It means their love that came first. In other words, you don't love God and people the way you used to. How about you, Christian? Does your love for God and people burn as brightly today as it ever has? If it doesn't, I'll say to you the same thing Jesus said to the church at Ephesus. Repent. Repent. Listen, church. It comes down to this. Beware of religion. That doesn't flow from a heart of love for God. Beware of religion that doesn't show itself in love for people. Beware of religion without love. Let's pray.